This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'd like to begin my introduction of this evening's speaker by describing very, very briefly his book, Kaddish. Some of you may have read it. Kaddish is an extraordinary book. Unlike Truly, unlike any other book you will ever read. During the year following his father's death, Leon Wieseltier undertook to fulfill his traditional duty to say Kaddish in synagogue three times a day, every day for the entire first year. And as he did, he sought to understand what he was doing and why through an exhaustive study of centuries of Jewish teaching about the Kaddish which, by the way, of course, is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible or, I believe, even in the Talmud. Out of his year of studying and reciting and bringing himself to synagogue three times a day, our guest, Mr. Wieseltier, produced a book which weaves together deep scholarship, profoundly personal reflection upon his own grieving process, and profound philosophical meditations on reason and faith, on the role of folklore and imagination for a modern Jewish mind. And Kaddish is a dazzling, humbling, moving book, unlike anything you will ever read. In the old days, it was not unheard of for one very intelligent person to become deeply knowledgeable about a wide range of subjects. But nowadays, almost no one attempts to think broadly. Wisdom has been replaced by expertise. Our speaker this evening, Leon Wieseltier, is a throwback to the old days. He is, I would say, a sage, a person worth hearing from on any topic. In his capacity as literary editor of the New Republic, he speaks to us eloquently passionately and thoughtfully on a wide, wide range of subjects, from culture to politics, from Jewish education to the conflict in the Middle East. And one more thing about the times we live in. In the old days, human beings believed in the power and importance of ideas. We Jews, in particular, used our minds, thinking long and hard about the most difficult questions in life, and produced the Talmud, a vast compendium of thinking, questioning, and arguing about how we should live. Nowadays, most people rely on their gut and close their minds and have given up the hard work of thinking. Leon Wieseltier is a product of the old school. He had a yeshiva education, and he still believes in the importance of ideas. He teaches us all the time that it is possible to think clearly and creatively about how to live together in this complicated world. It's a great pleasure and an honor for me to introduce to you this evening Mr. Leon Wieseltier. Thank you, Steve. Um, Hopefully by the end of the evening I'll find a way to respond to that vicious assault. Um, Thank you very much. What I want to talk about tonight, I'm going to be talking in broad strokes tonight, um, and we can fill all of it in in questions and answers, which is where a lot of thinking takes place. Um, What I want to talk about tonight is the structure or the logic of modern Jewish history 
both from seen politically and seen culturally. And I want to do this so as to, highlight, to give you certain thoughts and highlight certain aspects about the American Jewish experience and about the place of American Jewry in the history of the Jewish people. As you'll see, my, my report card, as it were, on American Jewry is mixed, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, the reason it's uh, when one speaks about the future of the Jewish people, I believe one speaks about the Jews who live in Israel and the Jews who live in the United States. This is not to say that there are Jews who do not live elsewhere. There are a substantial number of Jews in Russia, in Hungary, in France, in England, in Argentina, in Iran. But in some deep way, the future of the Jewish people will be determined by the friendly competition between the Israeli Jewish model and the American Jewish model. By the standards of Jewish history, this competition is an embarrassment of riches. As I say, it is a friendly competition. It is not a hostile competition. In, and to, in, in some sense, and we can talk about this later, we are, we are still talking about the old model of Bavel Virushalayim. Um, the only thing that happened in the Second World War that can be seen as a blessing to the Jewish people, and I know that's an odd way to begin a sentence, um, is that the fate of the Jews finally, finally left Europe. It was actually wiped out in Europe. But the European model for the way Jews would live in modernity what failed and was destroyed, and it was replaced by two other models, the Israeli Jewish model and the American Jewish model. And I want to briefly consider with you what these two models are, because it is one way to think about this friendly competition between American Jewry and Israeli Jewry is to see both the United States and Israel as two revolutionary experiments in getting away from the terms of Jewish life in Europe, in getting away from the terms of Jewish life in Europe. The shorthand for this, the shorthand for this would be as follows. The term of Jewish life in Europe, modern Jewish life, was rights, the term in Israel is sovereignty or power, and the term in America is interests. Let me tell you what I mean by this. In Israel, Jewish, the, Jews were given rights. Finally, in the late 18th century, beginning in 1782, as many of you know, with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and so on. Um, rights for Jews were not axiomatic. Since rights were given, rights could be taken away. The rights that were given were taken away in various countries at various different times. And by the time uh, you get to the 1930s and Hitler begins to extend his sway, all of Jewish emancipation was essentially nullified. There was nothing axiomatic about Jewish rights in Europe. It was still something that was awarded to the Jews on sufferance, on sufferance of the king, and to a certain extent on sufferance of, non, of, of, of European Gentile society. Moreover, the rights that were given to Jews were given to Jews as individuals. Jewish rights as a group, group rights, was, were never recognized in the European context. And so you have all the stories we all know about, the anguished modernity of German Jews, the anguished modernity, slightly less anguished, of French Jews, the slightly less anguished, even than that, modernity of British Jews, and the altogether unanguished modernity of Italian Jews. Um, and 
all, all the great stories of Jews who felt that they could only enjoy the rights that they were given insofar as they began to erase their Jewishness, either partially or totally, either partially or totally. Um, the most famous case, of course, was the, the German Jewish poet Heine, who said that he converted to, to Christianity because that was his passport to Western civilization. Um, but again, this was quite a common phenomenon. There was always the sense in Europe when Jews were given rights that Jewish participation in Gentile society would be acceptable and on equal terms only insofar as Jews agreed not to represent themselves as Jews when they took part in that society when they took part in that society. Only insofar as they agreed to certain processes of self-erasure and self-immolation. So this was the European model. Now, in the beginning, many Jews kindled to this model, because in, and for good reason. With the rise of the middle class uh, in Europe, and especially in the first half of the 19th century, Jews who had endured um, either oppression or indigence or both, uh, really began to believe that history was offering them an opportunity to be accepted in the larger world, in the larger society. To a certain extent it was, to a certain extent it was. When you read, except for a certain episode in the early 19th century in Germany, there is something about the first half of the 19th century, both in European history and in Jewish history, there is a feeling of things looking up. There is a feeling of things looking up, that maybe emancipation and enfranchisement could happen. Maybe Jews actually could find a way to belong in the societies in which they lived. Um, their hopes were very quickly dashed. Their hopes were very quickly dashed. It became clear that political or legal enfranchisement was not the same thing as social acceptance was not the same thing as social acceptance. The Jews who were, who were, who were, who were, who, who were um, you know, kind, kind of racing towards emancipation believed that political acceptance would mean social acceptance. It did not. Again, they were asked to make many, many sacrifices or modifications or distortions of identity in order to enjoy these rights. And eventually the rights were taken away. And eventually, the, this was never a solid foundation for Jewish participation in modernity, even if it looked good for a while. Um, Israel and America, or if you will, Zionism and American pluralism, were both experiments in new bargains, in new bargains. The Zionist experiment was a, is a little more familiar to us as such and a little clearer. The Zionists concluded, correctly as it turned out, that the, 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 the attempt to, uh, to, to integrate Jews as Jews into European society would fail, would fail. Um, Zionists were the first ones to become pessimistic about this experiment. Marxists and socialists were pessimistic for other reasons, but they too required a spectacular erasure of Jewish identity, a spectacular erasure of Jewish identity. But the Zionists believe, came to believe that anti-Semitism, and we'll talk about anti-Semitism in a moment, was an indelible feature of European culture. Um, they believed this with reason. Um, they could have extended their analysis to say that you, the, the, the dark side of Europe has always been the inability or the refusal of Christian Europe to tolerate the other, to tolerate the other. The Jewish other 
and as we know, the Muslim other. We saw that in Bosnia, and if you want to go back to the Middle Ages, the Albigensian other. But otherness, otherness has always been the, has always been the, 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 great, the, the, the great flaw in European culture. The Zionists recognized this. And so the Zionists decided, in accordance with um, the terms of European nationalism, that the only solution to this problem was to get the Jews out of Europe to a place, to their homeland, where they could actually exercise sovereignty as other peoples did. Zionism was essentially the application to the Jew- to Jewish experience of European nationalism. Of European nationalism, European nationalism had certain features which are not naturally familiar to Americans. European nationalism believed that every nation should be incarnated in a state, and every state should it sh- should should should. should, should follow the nation. In other words, European nationalism believed in a kind of ideal perfect fit, that the political boundaries and the cultural boundaries would always coincide. Now, of course, they never exactly coincided, and so all European nationalisms then had to deal with this thing called the problem of minorities, the most spectacular one of those problems being, of course, the Jewish case. Israel, which is founded on this on classical European nationalism and, and, and aspires to be and should aspire to be a, Jew, a majority Jewish state, also is experiencing the, the, you know, the, the problem of minorities. But we're not going to talk about that just yet. We can talk about Inyana Dioma and other things in the question and answer period. Um, but the term of Jewish life, the new bargain for Jews in their own state, would be power, would be power, would be sovereignty. Sovereignty, like all other nations, have sovereignty. Jews would determine their own future by themselves. You know, it was about Jewish self-reliance. In, by, my, by my lights, the most important Zionist text was not Herzl's Jewish State, even though that was the most exciting and repercussive one. It was a pamphlet in 1880-something, I forget the date, by a Russian Jewish physician named Leo Pinsker called Auto-Emancipation. Auto-emancipation is a fancy word for self-reliance, which Americans do know something about. And the basic idea was for the Zionists that the Jews would recover their historical agency. They would emancipate themselves instead of waiting for others to emancipate them. The Zionists correctly understood that even peoples in oppression, even individuals in oppression, retain their inner autonomy, retain their inner autonomy, we have seen this in all such cases. In, the, in this country, in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, a series of distinguished historians of the African-American experience in the United States devoted book after book to showing that, in fact, the African-American experience of, uh, cannot be reduced solely to the experience of slavery, that within the, the cruel orbit of slavery... Blacks develop their own culture, their own mores, their own rituals, their own music, their own dance, their own oral literature, and even their own written literature. So that even in conditions of oppression, there is no way for the oppressor to actually get inside people's minds or in their hearts or in their souls. They remain remain autonomous. The Zionists realized that the Jews also remained autonomous. They chose to act on this autonomy. The Jews would emancipate themselves. They would not wait to be granted rights by anyone else, which any way could be revoked, and they would establish a state like other states. As Herzl said, just as Britain is for the British and France is for the French. 
And, and, and in that sense, the revolution would be sovereignty. Sovereignty. The Jews would assimilate into the larger world as it was by becoming a sovereign nation like all other sovereign nations. Now, the United States offered an entirely different bargain. An entirely different bargain. Obviously, the bargain was not sovereignty. Obviously, the bargain was not sovereignty. But the United States was a revolution, not just in world history, but in Jewish history, but in Jewish history, because the United States was a society in which the rights of Jews as individuals and the, right of the rights of Jews as a group would be axiomatic. Would, now, we'll get into the question of American anti-Semitism in a moment. But it, they would be axiomatic. That is to say, um, um, Jews in this country would never have to argue for their rights. They could move beyond arguing for their rights and assert their interests. And they could assert their interests as Jews, both as individual Jews and as a Jewish group. This was inconceivable in the European situation. Inconceivable. You know, organizations, I don't know how you feel about APAC, you may like it, you may hate it, but the fact is a, a, an organization like APAC would have never existed in a European society because no European society would have permitted Jews to express their interests as a group, candidly, as Jews. Candidly, as Jews. Now, there were reasons that the United States offered the Jews and other groups this bargain. One of the reasons, of course, was that the United, in the United States, everybody came from someplace else. We leave aside the, the, the tragic case of the Native American population for now, but everybody came from someplace else. There was no native who could cast aspersions on anyone as a foreigner, even though earlier generations of immigrants tried to do that always tried to do that. We know this about immigrants. They tend to want to pull the ladder up behind them. But in this, in this country, the ladder can't be pulled up. I mean, it can't be pulled up, as the Republicans are discovering. Um, um, but there was, so in, in this country, uh, so there were structural reasons why this country could offer the pluralist argument, because in fact, it, this country is, in essence, a plurality of group identities, a plurality of group identities. There is the sacred hyphen in American identity. There, the hyphen did not exist in Europe. It could not have existed in Europe, nor does it exist in Israel, except as a description of the origin of certain groups. In America, all identity is hyphenated, is all hyphenated. I remember, you will recall some of you, many years ago, 30 years or more, when that TV series called Roots came out about the African-American experience. I remember thinking as I was watching it that this was very important because what it was doing was giving, we didn't call them African-Americans yet, this is my point, was giving American blacks an old country. It was giving them an old country. It gave them a hyphen. And you're, you don't have parity in the American pluralistic system unless you acquire the hyphen. Unless you, so all American identity is in some way a hybrid identity. And there is no shame in that. And there is no treason in that. And there is no betrayal of the American system, either philosophically or politically, in that. In that. The hyphen is the norm. And, the, the, and this idea that the hyphen is the norm, as I say, is a revolution in Jewish history. 
Is it because finally Jews found a society, a non-Jewish society, a host culture in the diaspora, if you will, that did not, not, that did not require, and we'll get to the problem of American anti-Semitism in a moment, that did not require the Jews to erase themselves as Jews, and eventually, by the time the 1960s roll around, and Americans begin to revel in the ethnic diversity of this country, that actually rewarded Jews for their difference and esteemed them for their difference. As a friend of mine once said, the United States is the only country in which people do not want to murder Jews, they want to marry them. Um, and, and this, as I say, was revolutionary in Jewish experience. This was revolutionary in Jewish, and so much so that I think it's fair to say that America may be the only, the only tfutzah that is not a gola the only diaspora that cannot really accurately be described as an exile, at least in the sense that no American Jews that I know live in this country as exiles. No American Jews that I know experience this country in the way that exiles experience this country, any country, which, by the way, leads to enormous problems in American Jewish culture because the good fortune of the Jews in this country, what has happened is a consequence of our good fortune, and I, I, don't, I, I think not only that American Jews are the most fortunate Jews in some ways who ever lived, I also, for reasons that I will get to, think that we are the spoiled brats of Jewish history, but I will get to that in a moment. But as a consequence of our good fortune, we no longer have any natural understanding of the travails and the tribulations of our ancestors. And, 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 and it, it, you know, this is the problem that all minorities have in this country. It's, it's the problem of taking yes for an answer. It's the problem of taking, it's a, that's psychologically and culturally a very difficult thing to do. You see this, for example, again, I'll give you an analogy in the African-American community. You see this in the enormous difficulties that African-American culture has now in trying to figure out where to put the experience of slavery where to put the experience of slavery. If they emphasize it too much, it seems unreal. It seems to deny the, the enormous discontinuity of, their, of, of African American experience. It seems to deny not only the fact that slavery no longer exists, but deny all the achievements of civil rights, both legally, socially, and so on, politically. And if they speak of it too little, they feel treasonous. They feel treasonous. They have betrayed the collective memory of their group. Jews have very similar problems, American Jews, American Jews. Because, and, and you see this, for example, most dramatically in the way America, in, in the enormously volatile way in which American Jews have handled the Holocaust experience, right? American Jews, for various reasons that we can get into, I'm not gonna get into them now, chose for many decades, rightly and to a certain extent wrongly, to give the Holocaust pride of place. After a while, it begins to seem a little bit false because there is nothing nothing about the experience of our Jewish brothers and sisters in Europe from the 1920s to the end that bears any, the faintest resemblance to what any American Jew has ever experienced, which is part of our good fortune, right? On the other hand, to ignore it or to diminish its importance or to marginalize it would seem like a crime against Jewish collective memory would seem like, so, you know, we've become, for this reason, and we can talk about this later, a culture of commemorations. Um, American Jewish culture is, to a degree that alarms me, a commemorative culture. But again, the commemorative impulse is complicated, because if you, if you, if, if, if you do too much with it, 
you, 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 you're, you're, you're lying to your own experience. If you do too little of it, you're lying to your, to your ancestors in some way. You're betraying your tradition. So when we sit at the Pesach Seder, and where it says that, that in every, you know, every, every Jew must regard himself as if he himself went out of Egypt, the imaginative leap that is required for American Jews to perform that as if is greater than the imaginative leap that was ever required of any Jews that preceded us, of any Jews that preceded us. And as I say, this is our good luck, but it has uh, complicating and even crippling consequences upon American Jewish culture that we can discuss. Now, when I say that American Jews are the most fortunate Jews who ever lived, and when I say that they are welcomed here to the extent that this is a diaspora that really cannot be called an exile, I do not mean to suggest that there, has, that there is no anti-Semitism in this country, or that there was never anti-Semitism. We know that American anti-Semitism is as old as the presence of the Jews in North America is as old as the presence of the Jews in North America. It began to flourish in the 18th century, and you all know the rest of the story. But this is the difference. In Europe, anti-Semitism not only enjoyed political legitimacy, you could actually run openly on anti-Semitic platforms and succeed. This was the, the, the most infamous case, of course, was the mayor of Vienna in the late 19th century. This was the case with French parties, and Germany, of course, you know the story. In America, there is this prejudice, but the prejudice has no legitimacy whatsoever. And what I mean by that is not only that there is social opprobrium against it, what I mean by that is that prejudice against Jews, like prejudice against blacks in this country, can be argued against in the name of the American Constitution itself. It does not require you to go outside the philosophical or political framework of the country, of the state, to argue against such prejudice, which is why Dr. King, when he chose to frame his arguments for civil rights in the 60s, always framed them in terms of the American Constitution. His argument was not that the American Constitution is invalid because of the three-fifths clause, of the infamous three. His argument was that the three-fifths clause is inconsistent with the letter and the spirit of the Constitution itself. So it was on American grounds that King argued for American civil liberties. And the same is the case with the American Jewish or American argument against anti-Semitism. In Europe, you will recall, starting in the late 18th century, the most common anti-Semitic canard in Europe in all of the countries was that the Jews constituted a state within a state. This is what they were called. And since they were a state within a state, they could not be successfully absorbed into the larger state, into Germany or France, and therefore they could not be welcomed because they were an essentially alien and disruptive element. They were a state within a state. In America, America is a state that consists of states, and I don't mean the, the, the state states. I mean, it would be incoherent in this country to accuse anyone of being a state within a state, because we all are that. 
We all are that. None of us are natives, and all of us are natives. And all of us are natives. So in the American dispensation, for the first time, for the first time in Jewish history, it's not that you didn't have anti-Semitic prejudice or Judeophobia, but the, the prejudice, the phobia, had no legitimacy inside the system itself. Indeed, it contradicted, it contradicted the philosophical and political spirit of the host country. And this, as I say, was, was really a revolution, a revolution in Jewish history. Um, unprecedented, unprecedented. And if you compare the, uh, so uh, if you compare the Israeli model and the American model, you see two very, very different ways for Jews to thrive in a new, in a new dispensation, in a new dispensation. American democracy, unlike European nationalism, when I mentioned earlier that there was this theory of the perfect fit between the nation and the state, and since the fit was never perfect, there was always the problem of minorities, European culture, European nationalism, European politics has no natural understanding of multi-ethnicity. None. None. Multiculturalism in Europe is, is, is 20 years old as a political idea and is owed largely, it was largely an attempt to deal with the influx of immigrants from the West Indies and from Muslim societies and so on. But classical European nationalism, the classical European conception of the state has no natural understanding of multi-ethnicity. The United States and India, though that is a complicated case, and we're not going to discuss that because there are no significant number of Jews there, so who cares, right? I mean, it just, uh, right? Um, but the, uh, the United States is, is a multi-ethnic society. The United States was multiculturally a reality long before there was an ideology called multiculturalism. The ideology called multiculturalism is something entirely different from the sociological and philosophical actuality of the United States, which is to be multicultural. We are essentially multicultural, you see. And this is something entirely new. So for this reason, and here I'm going to stop with the political part of, of, of my thoughts and we'll move on to the cultural, certain cultural questions about the American Jewish community. For this reason, the United States really is an entirely different model. And if you want to think semi-heretical thoughts, you can begin to ask yourself, if you want to do the books, as it were, which of the models has been more successful? Which of the models is more successful? I leave you with that question for now. We can talk about it afterwards. But it's not an easy, it's a complicated question to answer. It's a complicated question to answer. That's the political good news. What I want to talk about now for a little bit, and then we can talk about all of this together, is the cultural aspect of all this. Is the cultural aspect of all this. Um, <coughs> The, the United States, American Jewry, and I, I may as well start with the, with the bad news in as raw a form as possible. Um, by my lights, by my understanding, more of the Jewish tradition has been lost in the conditions of peace and prosperity and security that Jews enjoy in the United States than was ever lost in conditions of oppression and poverty and adversity in Europe. More has slipped through our fingers here than ever did before, than ever did before. Now, we have to analyze this a little. The first thing I want to say is that I am not emphatically 
not saying that what the Jews here need is a little persecution or a little anti-Semitism. Now, you laugh, but this was for a very long time, for over millennia, a very respectable idea, which began with Tacitus, and then Spinoza advocated this view, and then Jean-Paul Sartre advocated this view, the view and, and certainly in the emancipation debates in Germany in the early 19th century, there was this view that the only thing that keeps the Jews together is anti-Semitism, is persecution and adversity, and if, if you would only welcome them and drop, uh, drop the prejudice, they would disappear. They would disappear. Um, they would dis- now, this is spectacularly false about Jewish history itself. When you, if, if you consult Jewish historians and you study Jewish history, one of the things you immediately see, you immediately see, and I, I alluded to this earlier, is the extent to which Jewish, Jewish identity cannot be explained by Jewish adversity cannot be explained by Jewish adversity. If you study the great medieval Jewish communities, for example, and it was in the Middle Ages that the Jews created their civilization, created Jewish civilization, one of the things you immediately notice is the inner independence and autonomy of Jewish literature from all the terrible things that were happening to them, you see. I mean, in, 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 our, in our modern culture, in our historicist culture, we have elevated persecution into an obsessively central focus, right? We, I mean, and it's one of the great achievements of modern Jewish culture is Holocaust scholarship. We have created libraries of scholarship. On the other hand, if you go back to the Middle Ages, take, for example, the response to catastrophe after the Crusades. You read medieval Jewish literature after the Crusades, you read halacha, you read law, you read liturgy, you read poetry, you study Jewish ritual, and so on. The catastrophe is almost absent, is almost absent from that literature. It appears in the liturgy for certain commemorative purposes. The Yisker prayer was invented as a consequence of it. The mourner's Kaddish was originated in part as a consequence of it. There are a few poems that remain in our liturgy, but not many. There are a few legal decisions that were recorded. For example, what to do with Jews who were forced to convert to Christianity and now want to come back. Right? A huge problem, which later be- these decisions became very important in the period of the post-Moranos period, when, this became, when the numbers became really huge. Um, the, most of the, all the opinions, by the way, were lenient. They all said that these people can come back. But my point is that that Jewish culture, unlike our Jewish culture, when you read its literature, despite the fact that it experienced the first and second, but let's say the first attempt in European history to destroy a Jewry physically, to exterminate a Jewry. In other words, not just to argue against Judaism or to make the Jews second-class citizens and, and, and consign them to a subaltern status, but actually to physically destroy them, despite the fact that that community had experienced this enormous trauma, enormous trauma, the, exp- the trauma itself was not in the center of their identities was not in the center of identities. They were not an essentially commemorative culture. It's quite remarkable. It's quite remarkable. Um, so in, 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 in the United States, we have to seek reasons why it is that American Jews created the culture that they did. Now, some of the explanation, of course, is that we are an immigrant community that we are an immigrant community, and so we follow the rhythms of immigrant communities and their descendants. What I mean is this. Sociologists used to, I think they still do, think of a generation as 30 years, all right? 
So let, you begin, well, let's begin with the great immigration to the United States of Jews. There were Jews here since 1654, but I mean starting in 1880. Starting in 18, the great immigration that created the mass of the community that we have, right? The first generation, 1880 to 1910, let's just say, or 1890 to 1920, those are the immigrants themselves, right? The immigrants themselves cannot be expected to develop an indigenous Jewish identity. They bring the Jewish identity of the old country with them. And they do it proudly, and they suffer all the pains that we know about from novels and movies and so on, from American Jewish popular culture. They suffer all the pains of dislocation, uh, and so on, that come from people who think that they can transport a traditional culture to this country intact and continue to abide by it, right? All immigrant groups, by the way, experience this. So then you have the second generation, their children, and let's say that's, I don't know, ni- ni- 19, uh, 19, something like that. Um, but the children of immigrants, as we know, flock to the new country. They're, they became known as the all right Nicks. That's the generation that wanted to discard as much of the traditional baggage that their parents brought. They kindled to America. They wanted to be Americans. We all know the comedies and we all know the tragedies that this produced. American Jewish show business from this period is about almost nothing else. Is about almost nothing else, right? And they could not have been expected to produce an indigenous American Jewish identity or an indigenous American Jewish culture because they were flocking like a herd, a happy herd, to the American culture. To the Amer- so then you get to the grandchildren. And what happens in the time of the grandchildren? The two most spectacular events of modern Jewish history, almost at the same time, you have the apocalypse of the Holocaust, and you have the redemption or the proto-redemption, call it depending on what you believe, of the creation of the state of Israel. What that meant is that exactly at the time in which American Jews might have been expected to develop their own American Judaism, their own indigenous American culture, they were thrown back onto the experience of Jews in other places, the experience of misery and the experience of triumph. Now, when they were thrown back to these experiences, they did so speaking morally for all the best reasons, for all the best reasons, right? But it meant that American Jewish identity was, and it has continued to be, and it has continued to be largely a vicarious Jewish identity. American Jewish culture, until very, very recently, and the moment of truth is just arriving, is just arriving, Um, has been a culture in which American Jews have used the experience of Jews other than themselves as their primary reference point, as their primary reference point. And this leads to certain consequences. Another reason that we could give for... uh, Well, let, let me back up for a second. I think it's safe to say that if one... You know, when I was a graduate student, one afternoon... We were bored. I was a graduate student up at Harvard in Jewish history. And we were bored, and we began to toy toy with ideas in the seminar rooms. And some of us decided to invent a discipline that we would call comparative diasporology. (laughs) And what comparative diasporology would do is it would try to, to arrive at the profiles 
of all the great Jewish diaspora communities. Because one of the things you learn when you study Jewish history is that even though ideologically and as an article of faith we believe that a Jew is a Jew is a Jew and that a Jew in 16th century Warsaw has everything in common with a Jew in 16th century Casablanca, right? Even though we believe that and even though it is true that they had many central points of reference, um, the calendar, the founding texts and so on, Nonetheless, it was also true that each of the individual Jewries had different profiles which had to do with the host culture in which they found themselves. And there were things about 16th century Jews in Warsaw that would have been completely strange to 16th century Jews in Casablanca. Completely strange. And so we began to think of, you know, there was the great... The so-called Golden Age in Spain, we, the, the, the famous profile in which there were not only great jurists and great commentators and great philosophers, but also great warriors and politicians and poets, and not just liturgical poets, but love poets too, and not just love poets, but homosexual love poets, um, and so on and so forth. Um, as opposed to, say, the profile of the, the Jewish culture of Ashkenaz, which didn't have poets, and didn't have love poems, and didn't have courtiers, and didn't have warriors, had no philosophers, even though there are traces of philosophy that filter in in the 14th century, which essentially consisted in halacha, and pietistic mysticism, and liturgy. So each of these diasporas, they had different profiles. So eventually we got around to the question, we asked ourselves, what is the profile of the American Jewish community? We spoke, we're speaking as comparative diasporologists, right? How would we describe it? And we almost immediately agreed that the achievements of the American Jewish community so far have been largely communal, organizational, institutional, sociological, economic, and political, and not primarily cultural and literary and spiritual. Now, when I say not primarily cultural and literary and spiritual, I want to be clear. We were not talking about the contribution that American Jews made to American literature and culture and spirituality. There was no question that that was very great. What interested us was the contribution that American Jews made to themselves, to their own tradition, to the Jewish tradition. In other words, what did we add? What have we added so far to the Jewish tradition as, as, as a community? as a community, not what have we added to the United States, because we all, you know, all of us grew up with that book on our shelves, The Jew in American Sports by Dr. Harold U. Ribolo, and all of us know how many Nobel Prize winners are Jews, and all of us know how many Supreme, I mean, there are so many Jews on the Supreme Court that there are no Jewish seats anymore. I mean, there are only Jews and Catholics on the Supreme Court right now. Um, so, I mean, so it's not about the contribution that we made to, you know, Philip Roth, Saul Bellow, God help us, Woody Allen, other people, right? Did these people make contributions to American culture? Absolutely. Did they contribute to Jewish culture? Not that clear to me. Not that clear to me. Not that clear to me. And the first question that loyal Jews and honorable Jews have to ask themselves is what did they do with the tradition that they inherited? And the only way to, to measure what they did, it can't be by the standard of the host culture. It has to be by the standard of the Jewish tradition itself. It has to be by our standard, not by their standard. And as I say, when you measure the American Jewish contribution to the Jewish tradition, not to the American tradition, things begin to look a little skimpy. Things begin to look a little skimpy. Now, um, 
There is, in my view, one basic reason for this. I mean, there are many reasons. One of them would be sociological. As I just said, you can think of us, this is the immigrant story. And as I say, it happens to all immigrant societies. Right now, there are Pakistani Americans living in Queens who are heartsick that their daughter is going out with that Italian guy who lives around the corner. I mean, we all, it's the same story. It's the same story. And their children have forgotten their Urdu. We're going to get to Hebrew in a moment, right? It's the same story, Um, But there is, in my view, one overwhelming factor to the relative thinness of American Jewish culture. And again, the terrible thing about this is that this thin, uh, the thinness that was produced in conditions that would have been just as welcoming of thickness, just as welcoming of thickness, nothing in American society forced us, at least in the last 50 years, and even before to a certain extent, but certainly in the last 50 years and forevermore, forced us to in any way censor or inhibit our own expressions of our culture. That is not what is being asked of us here. That is not what is being asked of us here. And the one factor that, in my view, the great scandal of American Jewish culture, which I'm, I'm going to try to keep my remarks about this brief because I can be very tiresome on this subject, um, is that the American Jewish community is the first Jewish community in the diaspora that believes that it can receive, develop, and transmit the Jewish tradition not in a Jewish language. This has never been the case before. This has never been the case before. Jews always spoke many languages. They spoke Jewish languages. They, uh, they spoke non-Jewish languages. I mean, all of you have looked at Rashi. There's a reason why every tenth Rashi explains what the French word for it is, because all his readers were speaking French, right? Um, we have spoken non-Jewish languages, and there have been hybrid languages. There is Judeo-German, which is Yiddish. There was Judeo, there was Judeo-Spanish. There's Judeo, there's Ladino. There's Judeo-Arabic. There's Judeo-Persian. Right? There is no Judeo-English. There is no Judeo-English, and and not only is there no Judeo-English, there is not Yiddish, and most importantly, there is not Hebrew. There is not Hebrew. The, 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 this, and, and this is a this has been a community-wide decision, whether they know it or not by the American Jewish community, they believe they do not need a Jewish language. They really believe that. And the consequences of this are vast. The consequences of this are vast. They, uh, and, and again, I want to be clear, the ra- you, know, you study Jewish history and there's a great book to be written, it hasn't been written yet, about the history of the literacy of the people of the book, right? Um, about, this would be a very good time to turn off your cell phones. Um, Um, about the history of the literacy of the people of the book. Rabbis through the generations have always complained about the level of Jewish literacy. In the ancient Jewish world, there was actually a figure in the synagogue known as the Meturgimon, whose job it was to stand there when they were reading the Torah and every five or six verses to ask them to pause and to publicly translate the psukim, the verses, into either Aramaic or Greek, depending on when and where it was happening, so that people would understand what was being said. There has always been a problem, and as I say, Jews have always spoken many languages. There has always been translation in Jewish life. Always. Always. Um, you know, the Rambam, the, his great philosophical work was written in Judeo-Arabic. It created the entire Jewish philosophical tradition, but not in Judeo-Arabic. It did so in a Hebrew translation. And we have always had great translators because we are realists and we don't want Jews to be shut out of their cultural resources. However, 
However, the crisis in literacy that medieval and early modern rabbis complained about would be a luxury, would be a luxury for American Jews. I mean, I'll give you just a few examples and I'll stop because as I say, I can be tiresome about this. Um, take the example, we're talking about this at dinner. As you will remember in the late 18th century, Moses Mendelssohn produced something called the Beor. It was a translation of the Torah of the five books of Moses into German. And Mendelssohn in the preface wrote in a very heart-wrenching sentence that he was doing this for his own children because they themselves could not read the, the, the original. And this was Moses Mendelssohn. This was Moses Mendelssohn. Um, and then when he produced this translation of the Chumash into German, he was denounced by all the rabbis of Central and Eastern Europe. They put him into Cherem. They said he was a defeatist. He was surrendering to, Jewish culture, to German culture and so on. Now here's the kicker. This is what's so awful. When Mendelssohn published his, his treasonous Kiviachol translation of, of the, the, the Torah into German, he published it in something that was called Judendeutsch, which meant he published German words in Hebrew characters, right, to confront this crisis of literacy. Now, if Robert Alter or anyone else, when he translated the Torah into English, had published it in, 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 not in, in, in Hebrew characters, no American Jews almost could have read it which means that the level of literacy that had provoked the crisis in 18th century Germany that sent Moses Mendelssohn into despair is a level of literacy much higher than the level of literacy that we have now. And there are stories, you know, there you can anecdotally, I, I just, many years ago, um, not that many years ago actually, you've all heard there was a deposed president of Haiti called Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And Aristide at one point came to the States to try to gain political support for his restoration to power in Haiti. And he decided that he had to speak to the American Jewish community. And he went to New York and arranged, they arranged a meeting of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations. And they all assembled about around in some big law, firm, big law firm around this huge, terrifying table. And he began to speak to them. The joke was that Aristide had been a seminary student for two or three years in Jerusalem and his Hebrew was fluent. And he thought that since he was speaking to the Jews, he may as well speak to them in their own language. So here you had the black deposed president of Haiti talking to the leaders of our community in Hebrew who had within three or four minutes sheepishly to ask him if he could please start speaking in English because they couldn't understand the word he was saying. And there are story, I collect these stories because they're, they're so shameful. But the point I want to make, the point I want to make is that if one looks at what American Jews have done with the freedom that we have here, if one looks at what we've done with the lack of constraint that we enjoy here, if one looks at what we have done with the, with the encouragement of hyphenated identity and with the celebration of difference in this country, right? With the celebration of difference, when we look at the culture that we have produced in this country, you would think we lived in a society that kept us down and repressed us and insisted on our erasing almost all that we are. As I said earlier, more of the Jewish tradition has, has fallen through our fingers in this wonderful country that had no objection to it than ever fell through Jews' fingers in societies that tried to destroy it, that tried to destroy it. And this is a very harsh judgment, I understand, but it is something that we all have to ponder. We all have to ponder. You know, the, it's now 2013. It is almost entirely too late for American Jews to live any longer off the resources of European Jews. Um, the Holocaust survivors who live among us should live till 120, but soon they will not be among us. 
soon. There will be no shul in the United States into which you can go to where you will hear all those beautiful accents. All those beautiful accents. Those accents are the music of Jewish life, or they were. Those accents were the direct link, the direct link between this Jewish experience and other Jewish experiences. All this is about to disappear, and American Jews are about to be left to fall back entirely on their own resources. Israel, this is a long story about the history of American Jewish affiliation, disaffiliation, enthusiasm, lack of enthusiasm for Israel, however you want to measure it, however you want to describe it, I think it's pretty clear that Israel will no longer play the central place in American Jewish identity that it did in the first, say, 40 years of its existence for various reasons, some of them good. I mean, I am 61, which means that I was born not long after the state of Israel, or not, that's, yeah, right, shortly after the state of Israel was born. But because of that, and because I grew up in a world in which it hadn't existed, I am about the last generation for whom the state of Israel will not be experienced as a natural fact of the human world as a natural fact of the human world. I still cannot take the existence of a Jewish state for granted because it seems genuinely miraculous or generally anomalous or both, right? People who are 20 and 30 years younger than me grow up in a world in which there is a Jewish state along other Jewish states. They do not remember any of the great dramas They do not remember any of the great dramas that took place around its founding. And when it comes to history, nobody remembers anything anymore, so why should they remember that? Um, And and for a whole variety of reasons, and we're not going to go into that now, I think it's safe to say that insofar as American Jews relied on Israel for the the source, the origin of their vicarious identity, it's not going to work anymore. It's not going to work anymore. And so American Jews are now facing, will be facing, or maybe already are, a moment of truth in which they are going to have to understand that they are themselves solely responsible for the fate of the Jewish tradition in America, that nobody else but us is responsible for what happens to this tradition. This is a tradition that was not supposed to make it to us. This is a tradition that people and forces and powers attempted to wipe out again and again and again, even in the case of the Soviet Union, into our own lifetimes. Right? This is a tradition that actually was in parts, in places, successfully erased, violently, violently. This tradition was not supposed to make it to us, but it did. But it did, right? And so the question then becomes, what kind of custodians of this tradition will American Jews choose to be? Will American Jews choose to be? I am not saying that the tradition that we inherit should be transmitted unmodified, right? We are a living community. We are not a museum, We are not a museum. In fact, the more museums we found, the more anxious I get. Because museums are the opposite of life. Museums museums are where objects go to die. Right? Um, But we are not a museum. We are a living community. So the point is not, the point is not that we should just reify it and take what was given to us and very, very, very carefully making sure that nothing is broken, give it to our children and be done. Every generation leaves its mark on the tradition. Some things fall away, and by the way, sometimes they fall away naturally. You know, Jews are so, for for reasons of their history and experience, are so rightly obsessed with the problem of unnatural oblivion or coerced oblivion that they don't have any real understanding of natural oblivion. There is such a thing as natural oblivion. Things get forgotten, and it's fine because it makes room for what comes later, and then people can rediscover it, and it's all groovy. It's fine. It's fine. But, but there is, 
But still, there is this question of what modifications will we make in this tradition? How much will we subtract from it? Why will we have made these subtractions? And how much will we add to it? And why will we have made these additions? And what are these additions compared to the additions, additions that previous generations of Jews made to the same tradition? Made to the same tradition. In American Jewish life, and here I'll conclude with this point so we can dis- discuss all this, there has occurred since the 1960s a kind of ethnicization of Jewish life. Uh, because American, as I said earlier, American society began to define itself ethnically and everybody came from somewhere else. Now, one of the consequences of a purely ethnic definition of Jewish culture, and by the way, I don't like, I think that the ethnic characterization of Jewish culture is at best a partial one. We are not just an ethnic group. We are a civilization. We are a religion and we are a people. We are three things that are much larger than an ethnic group. Right? But one of the consequences, one of the consequences of defining ourselves ethnically is that it has in- occurred, and we talked about this a little bit last night, a kind of internal relativism in our understanding of our own tradition. Because when you think of things ethnically, every expression of ethnic feeling is as valuable as everything else. Right? So let's say I love Rambam and you love um, knishes. Knishes, right? Food, right? Or you love klezmer, right? So, and together we're all Jews because anthropologically speaking, ethnically speaking, it's all the same. That's how, that's, that's how ethnic groups are studied. They have their philosophers and they have their chefs, right? <laughs> However, since we are not just an ethnic group, since we are a, a religion and a civilization and a people, it is not the case. Were knishes to disappear one day from Jewish life, it would, I agree, be a tragic day, but it would not be as tragic a day as were Maimonides to disappear from our possession. There has to be a hierarchy of values. There are certain aspects of our civilization that are more important than others because they are the foundations of it. They are the fa- so it is not enough for us as American Jews just to revel in our ethnicity and think that all expressions of Jewish identity are equally valuable. They're all equally legitimate. They may be equally beautiful but they may not all be equally valuable. And insofar as American Jewry decides that its culture will not be primarily verbal, will not be primarily literary, will not be primarily philosophical or religious, but will instead be primarily ethnic in the sense that we will celebrate Jewish food and Jewish music and Jewish art and Jewish movies and and etc., etc., it may be that we are setting a standard that is much too low much too low to enable us to acquit ourselves of our responsibilities as the guarantors, of, as the custodians of this tradition, you see. And so, and I'll stop here just with this very, very, it's kind of a gloomy, you know, whereas when it came to the political question, I'm not remotely gloomy. When it comes to the cultural question, as you can see, I am quite gloomy. Why don't we stop there and I'll take all your questions. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.